Hello, I'm Doug Martin. And I'm Tasha Martin. Together, we share the joy of personal relationship with Jesus, marriage, children, and serving Vision Church in Lake Worth as pastors. Well, as the worship leader, I just want to invite you to come and worship with us. Well, something special happens when you come into the presence of God and His people in worship. As the lead pastor, I want to invite you to a very friendly and warm church that has a vision that it wants to share with everyone, seeing Jesus for us, in us, and through us. We're glad that you've decided to listen to our podcast, and I hope that if you're close enough to visit, you'll come by at 9.45 a.m. on Sunday morning, and after the service, say hello to us in the foyer. We would love to meet you. You can also connect with us at visionchurch.ag, on Facebook at AG Vision Church, and on YouTube by searching for Vision Church Assembly of God. Here's my husband, Doug, preaching a message from Sunday from that necessarily, but the title of our message is Aftermath, Seven Keys to Kingdom Entrance. Seven Keys to Kingdom Entrance. Last week it was seven mothers, people who went through some tough times. We went through the devotional last week, uh, finishing up this morning, those of you that were early birds and got on that, but uh, now we're moving into this next week, Seven Keys to Kingdom Entrance. And uh, you're going to find uh, some liberty, some freedom, setting free. And I'm, I'm speaking to people who are not born again. This message is for you. I'm speaking to people who have just been born again. This message is for you. And I'm speaking to people who have been born again years ago. And they are maybe struggling in their entering into the kingdom. And I want to challenge you. This message is for you. There are people who have been born again and have departed away and slipped away, this message is for you. So no matter who you are, no matter where you are, this is a message that was central in Jesus' ministry as he preached about the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. Seven keys to kingdom entrance. Have you looked in your pocket for your keys? Maybe when I mentioned keys, there you went. The shaking of the current kingdom ushers us or urges us to enter into a kingdom which cannot be shaken. We're feeling a shaken going on. The world is feeling a shaken, regardless of the source of that, the reason for that. It's something that has moved across the globe, and every, every kingdom has felt shaken. We have felt the shaken. You have doubtlessly felt the shaken, the shaking. I preached a message not long ago entitled, Whole Lot of Shaking Going On. The shaking of the current kingdom urges us to enter into a kingdom which cannot be shaken. Now, have you noticed that adversity brings with it a tuning and turning of the heart? This is what adversity does. It has an effect on the heart. Jesus warned perilous times would come. Men's hearts would fail them because of what was coming upon the earth. So have you noticed that adversity brings with it a turning of the heart. Now, you are going to turn one way or the other, up, down, in, out, hard, soft, warm, cold. There is going to be a movement in your heart when adversity comes. Some people are made bitter by adversity, and others are made better by adversity. And what's the difference? It's in the person and how they respond to the situation. I have a hopeful message for you today because in the middle of this adversity, in the middle of this aftermath, 
we do not have to be shaken, and we can turn our heart towards God. Jesus constantly taught on the kingdom of God. Everywhere he went, every village, every town, they heard a constant and common theme and common message. That repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. But he wasn't the first one to preach it. Before him was John the Baptist. And what did John the Baptist do? He preached, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. And what did the prophets before talk about? They talked about a kingdom that was coming. And what did Jesus have his disciples pray? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus was constantly teaching on the kingdom of God. He walked around revealing the kingdom of God. In fact, he said, if I am healing by the power of God, then the finger of God is being revealed amongst you, and the kingdom of God is near. The kingdom of God is near. And everywhere he went, he invited people to enter the kingdom of God. By the way, he is the door to the kingdom. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And he said in John, I am the door. He's the only way in. I remember as a kid in kids' church, we called it children's church then. I don't know if we were more sophisticated or what, but we used flannel grass and Uncle Dave played an accordion, and we used to sing a song all the time. One door and only one, and yet its sides are two. I am on the inside, on which side are you? One door and only one, and yet its sides are two. I am on the inside, on which side are you? And I'll tell you, as a kid in children's church, I thought, well, that's cut and dried. You're on one door, on one side of the door or the other. Which side am I on? And it always was an opportunity for searching the heart. Jesus walked around and pro proposed that there was a kingdom of God. It was here. It was among them. He was the door. And the question was, were they wanting to enter in? Now, he has not changed. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And he is reaching out through his church, through his people, through everyone who is named by his name. And what should be our common theme and our common goal? To speak of the kingdom of God and to invite everyone to enter in. You know God is not exclusive. He's all-inclusive. There's only one door, one kingdom, one way in. But everyone is invited by him. In Matthew chapter 23, verse number 13, you see, I looked through the Gospels. The rule was, I'm going to look through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and I'm going to hear the words of Jesus, and I'm going to see if I can't find some keys that he talked about for entering into the kingdom of God. Matthew chapter 23, verse number 13, he comes at it this way, and he says, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. Ouch. You yourselves do not enter, nor will you let those enter who are trying to. 
who are trying to. Now, he comes at it in a rebuke. He comes at it strong. He comes with a correction to the Pharisees and those who, he says, are standing in the way and preventing others from coming in, those who are trying to. So what's the first key? Desire. How does anyone ever come into the kingdom of God? It has to start in the smallest inkling of a desire, some sense of want to, in the direction of the Creator. I've heard people express it this way. God, if you're really there and really exist, I would like some help here. What's happening? They're expressing a desire, something in their spirit, something down deep in the depths, in the core of them is expressing a desire. They're beginning to find the key. This is the first key to entrance into the kingdom of heaven. And I want to share with you three words that go right along with this idea of desire. How about this? Hope, possibility, and interest. Not interest on a loan, but interest as in I'm interested in that. That catches my eye. That has caught my interest. When Jesus was talked about and when he ministered, something happened in the hearts of people. And here's how it began. Could this be him? Could this be the Messiah? That's hope. Is it possible that God has not forgotten his people and that he has an answer for us? There's a person who's willing to consider the possibility There is somebody who says, I think I want to hear more about this Jesus. I think I want to hear more of what he has to say. These are people who down in the depths and the core of their being have an interest in what's going on. There is a desire in them moving towards the Creator. There are people all over the world who are actually interested in, looking for, and desiring to see whether God exists and if they can meet Him. They're looking for opportunity. Maybe you're tuned in right now because the Holy Spirit has drawn you to this broadcast, and you're hearing these words, and they're doing something inside of you. What is that? That is the work of the Holy Spirit that's down in the depths of your spirit because your spirit is saying, you know what? There's got to be more than this. There's got to be a positive aspect of the future. There has to be a possibility, maybe, that this could be so. There is an interest in me that I don't know why that is just drawn towards that. I've heard those stories of people who didn't know what was going on but hung around outside of a special meeting that was being held by a healing evangelist or somebody preaching the gospel. How many millions of stories have been told about people who simply overheard a conversation and what happened was something sparked inside of them. They said, my hope, my possibility, and my interest have intersected with this conversation and I want to know more. Jesus, the Holy Spirit, intersects with us in those places, in those places of hope, possibility, and interest, and He intersects with us and draws us towards God. These connect into our heart, into our spirit. That's the first key. Now we move on. Jesus answered, Very truly, I tell you, we heard about this just a few weeks ago, Very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God. There it is, the kingdom of God. No one can enter the kingdom of God unless 
They are born of water and the Spirit. John chapter 3, verse number 5. We looked at that in conjunction with Nicodemus. So what's the second key? The second key is for somebody to be born again. To be born again. This is a supernatural event when the Spirit is connected with God. Now what has happened? Let me give you the story real quick in a nutshell. God created the heavens and the earth. He called it good. He created man, called it very good. And then he took the woman and the man, put them in a garden, and they were now on the road to beginning to connect with and learn about God. They were innocent. They were built perfectly, but they were immature. And he brings them and begins to introduce himself to them and bring them along the road of discovery of who he is. They're wide-eyed and full of wonder. Adam has named all the animals. He has named his wife. And they are now just commanded. Here's the command. Of all the trees of the garden you may eat, except for the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Where do we find them a couple verses later? Hanging out there at the tree of knowledge and evil. And there is a subtle beast of the field called the serpent who has joined them. And he begins to lure them away and begins to entertain them with some ideas that God has not given them. They're now finding themselves in direct opposition to God's command, and then they take of the, the fruit, their eyes are opened, and they fall. Their spirit is still existing and alive, but it is disconnected from God who is life. God had warned them, in the day that you eat thereof, you will surely die. Man's spirit disconnected from God in that moment. And ever since then, we have been viewing in Scripture a rescue operation of God coming to us and saying, it's not hopeless, you can be brought back to life. Jesus comes to the earth and he begins to proclaim the kingdom of heaven and he says to them, they're dead, they're lost in trespasses and sin, they're in darkness, they don't know life. But he's come, not to condemn, but to save. And so what does Jesus proclaim? A very simple truth to one of the lead teachers of the day. Nicodemus, except a man is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of heaven. Nicodemus, except a man is born again, he cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. This is a supernatural event when the spirit of a man is reconnected to God and now he's alive. Powerful. This is the essence of the gospel. This is the essence of what the mission that Jesus was on. This is the essence of freedom to come out of trespasses and sins and bondage and be brought into the glorious freedom of being called a son, a daughter of God. To be restored to the lost position, the position that was lost, I should say, of Adam and Eve. So here's three words I want us to lay alongside this idea of being born again. Revelation, repentance, resurrection. Consider those three words with me. Revelation. That's when the light goes on in your spirit and you see something you couldn't see before. We sing a great song in the church. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. 
spiritually blind, disconnected from God, and then by the work of the Spirit, the light goes on, and Jesus says, except the man is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of heaven. When he comes by faith in Jesus Christ alone and establish his faith in him, the light comes on. Somebody is now home. The Holy Spirit is at work, and revelation happens. Revelation is not something you know. It's, revelation is something being revealed to you you otherwise couldn't know. People can read this Bible and not understand it, but revelation is to read these words and they come alive. They jump up off the page. Revelation is spiritual life coming into the spirit of a person to make the hidden things known. The covered up things now are as plain as day. How about this? Repentance. Now, repentance is not being sorry for being caught. Every time I snuck cookies and was caught, I was sorry only for being caught sneaking the cookies. Now, this hasn't been recently. I'm talking about when I was a kid. I was sorry for the punishment I might face for sneaking the cookies and that that was happening to me, but I still savored the cookies. In fact, they were already digested. I had already hit pay dirt. Now, I was having to pay, and sometimes, frankly, it seemed like a worthy price. Grounding, that's not too bad. I got a couple Oreos. But, what's repentance? Repentance is being sorrowful for the... sinner they are and they come with repentance and they sound much like the son father i have sinned against heaven and against you i'm not worthy to come back into your household but i'm willing to come like one of your hired slaves that and then resurrection what happens as a result of this life that comes into a person when somebody's born again, resurrection happens in their spirit. This is an amazing thing. The light goes on. They accept Christ as their Savior by the work of the Spirit. And now, that which is dead is now alive. The person who was dead in trespasses and sin is now a new creation, is born again, is encountering the power of Jesus' resurrection in their spirit, their alive the holy spirit shows us our sin and its impact upon jesus this is really what happens when a person's born again they recognize jesus had to suffer for my sin let me just tell you something if i were the only one on earth jesus would have come and die for me because of my sin and you know who would probably crucify him i would think about that the same is true for you that's what our sin would do and our pride would do. And so he came and offered himself, and we are made alive to God in our heart, in our spirit. Key number two. Those are biggies. The other ones just kind of fall into place. Once you begin to respond, and then you're born again. But wait, it's not over. There's still some locks to be unlocked. There's still some steps to be taken. Are you ready? For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you certainly will not enter the kingdom of heaven. That's, now, who said that? By the way, every time this is Jesus speaking. 
This is not one of his disciples. This is not one of his apostles. This isn't Pastor Doug. This isn't somebody in 1672 who wrote it down in a book. This is Jesus himself who says, I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Man, that's a heavy word. That's powerful. But Jesus sounds so negative. Why? Because he wants you to enter. He doesn't want you to miss. He wants you to come in. He doesn't want you bound. He wants you to establish yourself in perfect freedom. And so he challenges his disciples and he says, accept your righteousness surpasses. This is the third key. Righteous or righteousness. Changing from self-righteous to Jesus' brand of righteousness. Now, here's the inside scoop on humanity. We love to justify ourselves and to believe that if the world went our way, it would be a wonderful world. We hear Louis Armstrong singing the back of the soundtrack of the story of our life. What a wonderful world that would be. What a beautiful world. No, that's not true. Self-righteousness is what destroys us. Self-righteousness decays us. Self-righteousness puts us into a bondage, but let me share with you very quickly three words along the lines of righteousness. How about this? Conviction, change, and challenge. Conviction, change, and challenge. So what happens? Is the Holy Spirit done convicting us? No, he's just begun. Jesus said this is his job, conviction. So what does he do? He comes and he shows us how Jesus is and how we are. I don't know about you, but I don't like to be compared to people. Have you ever been compared? Have you ever stood beside a professional athlete that plays basketball, stands about 7'2", has broad shoulders, and you're thinking, I only thought I could play basketball. <laughs> I can't. Have you ever been up close and personal with a professional golfer? that just stripes every drive right down the middle, hits every green, and complains if they're 10 feet away from the pin instead of 2 feet. They practice all the time, and you're thinking, you know, I used to think I could golf, but not now. Sometimes that's the way we feel when the Holy Spirit shows us Jesus. We go, whoa, things are out of whack. What is that? That's conviction. And here's the great news. With conviction, we're immediately pointed to the mercy of God. And the righteousness of Jesus Christ, which allows us to stand before the Father. And then he says this, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And then we change. Something transforms in us. Our behavior changes. Something comes over us and we have a power now for change in our life. It's not a religion which says change and we can't. But now it's a relationship which says, this is better, isn't it? And we say, absolutely. And then there's a change and a transformation in our life. And then there's an ongoing challenge. A challenge. I need to go higher. I need to, I need to invest more. I need to step deeper. I, I, need to, I can't give up. Until he can do the transforming work on the inside. 
so that we stand in Jesus because he works in us both to will and to do his good pleasure. Wow, what a plan. A plan for righteousness for his people, for people. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7, verse 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, now listen to this, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? That means to speak things for the Lord on behalf of the Lord and even tell the future as the Lord reveals it to you. And drive out demons in your name? There has to be the name of the Lord and some spiritual power present in order to deal with the real and the demonic realm, and in your name, as if that's not enough, perform many miracles. Not false miracles, not demonic miracles, but actual miracles that occur because the name of Jesus is invoked as they pray. He says, then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you, Away from me, you evildoers. Now, I know what you're thinking. Man, Jesus, I didn't realize he was that negative. Pastor, you keep bringing up these negative statements Jesus made. Why? Because he loves us. He doesn't want us to miss the door, and he doesn't want us to miss the journey into the kingdom. He's come for this very reason, that we might have life and have it more abundantly. And so he cautions them. The one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven... So what does that bring us to? Key number four, doing. Doing. Acting upon the will of God. Doing upon earth as it is done in heaven. Now here is where religious people always have a challenge. And you know there's a certain amount of people on the earth that have an inkling towards God and they love to move towards religion. Any kind or stripe of religion. And they find some sort of satisfaction there. And it's this idea of I can do this and this and then I'm okay. We as human beings love to know this. What boxes do I need to check? Okay, okay, let me, let me buy this insurance policy, check this box, check it, sign it, and then you'll debit my account $59 every month, and then I have this insurance, right? And that's not going to change, right? Right. Thumbs up, everybody's happy, shake hands out the door. I'm done purchasing insurance. I've got it done. I've got it behind me. That's not how entering the kingdom of God works at all. Religion can work that way, but a relationship with Jesus doesn't work that way. So many of us are happy and pleased with knowing or believing something. Oh, wait, I just have to know that or believe that, and then everything's okay, right? I just have to say that out loud, and then the magic words, and then it's good, right? Oh, no, no, no. Jesus said, there are people who thought they had it right. And I'll say to them, depart from me. I never knew you. I never knew you. Religion can be so deceptive. And we can deceive ourselves so easily. But I'm going to help you to not miss that. I bet you want to walk into the fourth key as much as I do. And that is this. Faithing. I'm going to share three words with you. <laughs> Here's a new one, right? Faithing, risking, and standing. What's faithing? Here, here's why I put it this way. Because we say faith or belief, and we think of something we make a mental assent to, and then we go on our way. And that's not what it means. It means to believe and keep on believing. 
It means to stay in a position of perpetual movement in a direction and in perpetual receivership of that which is intended. But in our English language and in our mentality, we want to say, where do I check the box? What do I do? And then it's done. And that's not what he's saying at all. He's saying this doing is a continuing faith. Faith is a walk. Those who walk by faith. So we need to be a people who are involved in faithing, believing. And that means to not only make assent to it, but then to act upon it as truth and brings a transformation in our life. How's this one? Boy, we all like this one, right? Risking. Faith has a risk to it. Faith is going somewhere where you don't know what to expect when you get there. Faith is an obedience to God when you don't know the outcome. There's a deep sense of trust involved here, and we're called to a risk. Every disciple knew he had a risk before him. Leave everything and follow me. Where will I get my food? Where will I sleep? What will life look like? Jesus doesn't answer that question. He says, come see where I'm staying and come live the life I'm living. And you know what they did? They took the risk. And later they would tell him, Jesus, we gave up everything to follow you. And he said, oh, that's impossible. You give stuff up, God gives it back. He presses it down, shakes it together, and runs it over. You can't give up something for God. You can surrender to the plan of God. He says, but, but you'll receive many more in this life and in the life to come. There's just no way that you've taken a risk and you've lost. You've taken a risk and you've won. Entering the kingdom of heaven requires an active faith and requires risking. And then how about this one? Standing. Now, I just got done telling you you needed to move, and then I told you to stand. Now, this is the idea of standing up, taking a stand. This means when others are saying, let's do this, you stand and you say, no, I'm taking my stand right here this far, no further. I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to involve myself with that. I'm going to take a stand for the Lord. That's a powerful move. Sometimes it can be done silently, but it's a powerful statement to people. I'm not going to do that. I'm going to stand here and not there. It's that, ex that exclamation of Joshua who said, you choose this day whom you will serve, but as for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. I'm going to take a stand on these principles, upon these precepts, and upon this truth, and here is where I'm going to stand. On Christ the solid rock, I stand. There's times that taking a stand is one of the most active things that you can do. The Holy Spirit urges us to act upon what it means to have Jesus Christ as Lord in our life. Takes us into this area of faithing and risking and standing. Bet you're ready for key number five. Can hardly wait. I can't. This is great stuff. I find it in the Word of God. It's not because I'm telling you. It's right there in the teachings of Jesus. I was asking him, what, what are the keys? How, how does one enter in? You tell us to enter in. Surely there's some clues along the way. Here's clue number five. Here's key number five. He called a little child to him, and he placed the child among them. Now the little bit inside baseball here, behind the scenes, the disciples were always arguing. And you know what they were arguing over? Who was going to be blessed by washing feet and taking out the trash? Oh, no, no. They were always jockeying for who was going to be first in the kingdom, who was going to be second, who was going to be third, and they were always pointing at each other and saying, well, surely you're going to be last. And that was the most horrible thing they could think of. And so Jesus is always catching them, hanging back when they're walking, and arguing and discussing. And so he calls a little child. They come to a house, 
And in, we need to understand something. This, it's not this way today, but in that day, children were to be seen and not heard. Children were to be with their mothers and to be out of the house because when the men came together, there were not supposed to be children around until the boys only attained their bar mitzvah. The women and the girls were supposed to be there to serve the meal. It would not be uncommon at all for them to set the table and excuse themselves from the room, and then the men take care of business and then when they were done, the men would leave, and then the women and children would come in and finish and then clean up. Some of you are sitting there. I know what you're thinking. Sounds wonderful. The good old days. That'd be awesome. No, most of the men are thinking that. I don't know of any lady that's thinking about that. So he calls a little child to him. Why does he call him? Because he's probably out of the room. He's not included in the mix. And so Jesus calls a little child to him and placed the child among them. This was not appropriate as far as they were concerned. But Jesus is not concerned about appropriate. He's concerned about the kingdom of God and getting as many people into it as he possibly can. And he said, truly I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, the disciples are thinking, yuck, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Wow, that's awful negative, Jesus. Except you become like one of these, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever takes the lowly position of this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, and whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. What a controversial statement. But it's life-giving, and it's freeing because he's explaining the values of the kingdom of heaven. Now, he's not asking them to crawl on the floor and drool and eat everything in the dirt. He's not asking them to do that. He's saying, change and take upon yourself the nature of this child, and then if you'll live like that and people accept you, it's the same as accepting me because you're understanding what it takes to enter the kingdom of heaven. What's key number five? Emptying. Life's just too full, isn't it? Some of us have realized over the last couple of weeks that life was really full of a lot of stuff that it didn't need to be filled with. And there has been a forced emptying of our priorities, of our life, of our stuff. I've seen more stuff beside the curb getting hauled off. People are taking the time to empty garages, empty sheds, and realize we don't need this. Priorities have been shifting whether they wanted them to or not. Here's what emptying is, choosing me last and giving up rights. Choosing me last and giving up rights. A child had no rights, and a child was picked last. How many of you remember those painful days in gym class? Two captains were chosen, usually rippled with muscles, able to throw a ball at 1,000 miles an hour, and they would be the captains, and then they would start to pick. And you did not want one thing. There's one thing. You're a single prayer. Lord Jesus, don't let me be picked last. Because the last person actually wasn't picked. They were forced onto the team. That other person was stuck with them. You could never be picked last. Know what Jesus says? Jesus says, choose to be picked last. Choose. You choose to put yourself in the position of the child without standing. And so he lays this before us. Change, humility, and no standing. 
It would take a lot to change to be more like a child, wouldn't it? Some of us have to become a little more naive. Some of us have to become a little more trusting. Some of us have to be much more open-hearted. Some of us would have to be willing to be expecting a lot more of people. We would find ourselves in a world that most people would say, oh, grow up. Smell the roses. Smell the coffee. No longer smell the roses. Smell the coffee. We're adults now. But Jesus says, you need to change, guys. You need to humble yourselves, and you need to take a position of no standing. They were jockeying for the opposite. I'm not going to change. I'm going to be prideful, and I'm going to take first spot in the kingdom. But the Holy Spirit urges me to be like Jesus and become empty so he can fill me up with himself. Why does he want us to be empty? Because if we'll become humble, we'll put on his likeness, we'll be much more like him. And what happened to Jesus because he was humble? He was filled with the Spirit beyond measure. Without measure. James tells us if we humble ourselves, what happens? We're exalted under the mighty hand of God. If we choose the route of humility, what happens? God gives grace to the humble, but he resists the proud. That'll keep coming up and keep coming up. Why? Because it's a principle of entering the kingdom of heaven. Key number five, emptying. Key number six, then Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I tell you, it is hard for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. And when the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished and asked, Who then can be saved? Why would they say this? They lived in a culture that taught that God blesses righteous people. Abraham was righteous. God blessed him. Therefore, all the people in our society that are wealthy, the king, the priests, the chief scribes, and the elders, they all live in fine homes. They all run the marketplaces in the temple. They all run the sheepfolds and everything else. They're dripping with money. They're wealthy. They can sail anywhere they want to, anytime they want to. They live in the finest homes. Why? Because of the blessings of God, because they're right with God. But Jesus challenges that idea. It's obvious that he challenges that. And he looks at people and he says, man, it sure is hard for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom. Notice he doesn't say it's impossible. He says it is hard. Why? Because you have to become dependent. Key number six is dependent. Dependency. To become dependent. Now, what do we as Americans want to, in the name of freedom, do? Become independent. And here's what we say. I want to get the kind of job that I can set my own hours. And how many have heard this ad? Would you like to set your own hours, work from home, and make thousands of weeks, and then have your own employees, call your own shots, just call us at 1-800-whatever, and we'll sign you up today. Five easy steps. And you could be making, you could be making $5,000 a day, like three of our top salespeople. And we all go, oh, man, sign me up. The lottery says, scratch and win. And we say, why? So I can become independently wealthy. 
And the, what is the basis of that? I can become independent and I will never have to can be concerned ever again about the next day, what I'm going to have, what I'm going to wear, where I'm going to go. My only question would be, where in the world am I going tomorrow? And am I going to fly, take a boat, or take the fanciest car I can drive? Wow, what a life. But that's not what Jesus teaches. The disciples thought that was the apex. That was the top of the heap. And he says, oh, man, guys, how hard it is for these rich guys to get into heaven. They can't enter into heaven. And they're like, well, then who can make it? We're all lost. Nope. Jesus is teaching them a principle of dependence. It's subsisting upon God's grace as a steward, not an owner. Let me help you a little bit with your materialism. Let me help you with the concept. What would happen in your life if you changed from being an owner to a steward? What does it feel like to be a steward? Somebody else owns it, but you're charged with taking care of it. If you're taking the boss's car out, you tend to be more careful with the boss's car than your own even if you don't like them. You're more careful. Why? This is not mine, and I'm responsible. So stewardship is I don't own it, but I'm responsible for it. If you lease a vehicle, you tend to take better care of it than if you own it. Because why? You're going to have to turn it back in, and if you don't, you're going to have to pay extra for the miles and for the dings and for the other things. And so you're like, oh, no, no. I don't want to turn this back in at the end of the lease and be owing big-time bucks. Why? Because you, you don't own it. You're a steward of it. Jesus understands that principle. Jesus goes around and he says, you know, foxes have holes and birds have their nest, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. What does that mean? I don't own anything. Do you know that Jesus was a guest everywhere he went? He never owned his own home. He was a guest in Peter's mother-in-law's house. They would go into a town and wonder, who's going to take us in for the night? And there was always somebody that the Lord had ready who had said, I'd be honored if you come and stay with me. I'll bet that Jesus stayed in some tents and slept under bushes. And there were other times he slept in the finest house in town. And you know what he said? Father, doesn't matter. I'm just doing your will, so wherever you want to put me up, I'll stay at the Motel 6. I'll stay up at the Hilton and the Radisson. It doesn't matter to me. All I know is you're going to take care of me, and I'm going to go and do your will. Jesus knew what it was to be a servant. Here's three words that we need to bear in mind when we talk about this dependence. Servant, steward, and subsistence. Three words that really rankle us, if we're honest. And three words that the disciples wrestled with. They didn't want to hear that in Jesus' vocabulary. No, no, no. We want to have the best place at the meal, and we want to be going through the marketplace and having people greet us and defer to us, just like we've seen it all of our life with the wealthy people. But Jesus says, no, no, no. Servant. What did he say? The Son of Man has not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He always tells parables of stewards, people who are given resources and finances and then held in account by the Lord, and they have to give account with what they have done, with what they have been given. Do you know that that's not your body? That's God's body, and you're using it. Do you know that's not your soul? That's God's soul. He's built it and designed it for you. You're a steward of that soul. Do you know that spirit that's in you? That's not even your spirit. God's handwriting is all over you, spirit, soul, and body. You are not your own. You're bought with a price, even the blood of Jesus, the Christ of God. And when we give account to God, it is what we're going to do 
We're going to give account on the basis of our stewardship. He's going to ask this question. What did you do with that spirit, that chance, that gift of salvation that I offered to you? What did you do with my son? What did you do with that mind, will, and emotions? Did you fill it up with garbage and trash? Or did you do everything with creativity and everything that you had as gifts and talents for me? What did you do with that body? Did you trash it, wreck it, and break it into pieces? Or did you steward it faithfully, recognizing that the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof? A steward changes everything, doesn't it? And subsistence, what does that mean? Jesus said, take no thought for tomorrow. I'll take care of you each day on that day. Go with me to the people of Israel and go through the wilderness. What did they do? They went and gathered up manna once a day, every day, except for the seventh day. They got double on the sixth day. And it was like clockwork, and it happened every week. And ho-hum, boring, they knew the life of subsistence, and they were taken well care of in the wilderness. But you know what? They were tired of subsistence. They were tired of being held in account as stewards and servants, and they wanted to become independent. And what did they do with that drive for freedom? They found themselves in idolatry in the promised land. They found themselves kicked out of the land and taken into a land of idolatry until the land could rest. Why? Because they couldn't handle this. And Jesus says, see those people over there? Those people you want to be like? How hard it is for them to enter the kingdom of heaven because they don't know what it's like to be dependent and what it is to be dependent upon God. Key number seven. Jesus said in Mark chapter 9, verse 47. Now, some of you are thinking, you know, Jesus, or pastor, you're being pretty negative on some things. Well, no, Jesus was being pretty negative on some things, and I'm just faithfully representing him. I'm just, I'm just bringing the message to you today. He says, and if your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell. Ouch. Yes, I use that word in church. Jesus used that word all the time. He talked as much or more about hell than he did heaven. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell if you're more comfortable H-E, double hockey sticks. Where the worms that eat them do not die, and the fire is not quenched. Why is Jesus eagerly inviting people into the kingdom? Because if they don't enter the kingdom, they're left to the kingdom of darkness. If they don't enter the kingdom and freedom, they're left to bondage. If they don't come into life and live forever, they are left to decay and rot. No. He's got a much better plan. So number seven key, the number seven key for entering the kingdom of heaven. Radical. One word. Radical. Be a radical. Be extreme. Now, some of you are saying, oh, pastor, that's not my personality. I'm not extreme. There are many people who are extreme. The question is what you're extreme about. What you're radical about. Everybody has the hot button. Everybody has the place where they're a radical. What does it mean to be a radical? Eliminate those things that can keep you from entering the kingdom. When they went into the promised land, you know what God told them? Go find all the idols and all the groves, cut them down, chop them up, grind them into powder so you can't even recognize where it used to be. Utterly obliterate it, take it down with a vengeance, get angry and destroy that thing. So here's three words. The 
Jesus uses in the Gospels, and I'm going to use in this final key. Hate, banish, and break up. Hate, banish, and break up. What does it mean to hate something? Jesus said, unless you hate your family, you can't come into the kingdom. Now, is he actually telling you to go be mean to your family? No. He's saying the comparison between this thing that you think you love and the kingdom of heaven is so great that when you see what it is to be in love with God and to do his will, that there is, it's like you hate this other thing. There is now a big difference between what you used to feel and what you feel now. There is, needs to be a hatred for sin. Folks, have we lost our hatred for sin? And, and we can hate sin in other people's life, but when was the last time you hated sin in your life? No, no, we excuse our sin, but what does the Bible tell us to do? To hate sin. And to start with hating our own sin. How about this? Banish. What does it mean to banish? To put it away from you. How about this? As far as the east is from the west, it can't get any further than that. He wants us to banish certain things from our life. You see, when he uses this idea of accept you, uh, pluck out, if your eye offends you, pluck it out, it would be better for you to go. He's using what's called hyperbole. He's not actually saying, if your eye offends you, go ahead and pull it out. The whole audience understands what he's saying. Only uh, silly people need to have explained a little. We may need to have a crawler underneath this sermon that says, please do not try this at home. This was only hyperbole, and Jesus didn't mean actually go and do it. But, you know, there'll be a handful of people on the planet of the earth that does things literally because they read it in the Bible. So I'm not responsible for that, and Jesus isn't responsible for that. So what's he talking? This is hyperbole. This says it's better for you to go into the kingdom of God maimed than it is for you to be kept out of the kingdom of God in a whole body. Is that true or is it not? Jesus knows what he's talking about. He says it's better for you to be in the kingdom. And it's so much better, it's like this. This is how big of a difference there is in here. And then he says this, break up. He instructs us in this idea to break up. Some of us are in unholy, unrighteous, sinful relationships. And what do we need to do? We need to flee them. We need to break up. I had friends, dear friends in my life, that didn't know Jesus and didn't serve Jesus, and I had to get to a point where I said, I can't hang out with you all the time anymore because your influence on me is greater than my influence on you. I can't be around you for a while, and I had to break up. There were believers that I had been around, and the, the influence on them was greater for the kingdom of darkness and for sin than it was for the kingdom of God. And I had to say, I can't hang around with you anymore. And what did we do? We broke up. I dated girls who I figured out real quick had no relationship with Jesus Christ, and I wanted to enter the kingdom of God. And you know what I had to do? I had to, after a date or two, realize there's just no change here, and I, I don't think it's not up to me to win them. And I had to tell them, I'm sorry, we can't go out anymore. I've had to counsel my daughter and my children. You know, that person, they're going to build you up or take you down. You're going to have to make a decision. I'm not telling you what to do, but you're going to have to make a decision. And I watched them have to make those decisions. Why? Because they had to break up because of what that relationship was doing in their life. So the Holy Spirit helps me to deeply dislike sin and begin to attack even the desire. That's radical. 
That is radical. But that's exactly what Jesus asks us to be. When he makes that comparison and says, it's better to pluck out an eye and go into, go into heaven with one eye than it is to hang on to that eyeball and find yourself in the lake of fire, burning forever, separated from me. That's how much Jesus loves us. That's how much God wants us to be in his kingdom, that he would dare to speak a negative word to us and say, what do you need to hate? What do you need to banish? What do you need to break up with? And the Holy Spirit will help us to deeply dislike sin and attack even the desire. What would happen in your life and my life if we genuinely hated sin when we committed it and then hated it so much that we stayed away from it? It's not about hating people. That's where we mess up. It's not about hating people. It's about hating that sin and what it does in our spirit. So those are the seven keys. Well, I know it's not all, all happy and joy, joy, but it's worth hearing from Jesus these seven keys to the kingdom. It starts with a desire in our spirit. We're born again in our spirit. We, be, we move into his righteousness. We begin doing the things which please God. We begin emptying ourselves and becoming humble. We become dependent upon him instead of independent. And we become radical for him. We're not just a fan. We're a fanatic. And isn't Jesus worth it? Isn't eternal life worth it? Isn't making it into and entering into the kingdom of heaven worth it? It is. So let's pray. I want to pray with you. Lord, as we bow before you, we thank you for this word. We thank you for the seven keys for entering into the kingdom of heaven. And I thank you, Lord, that you're working in the lives of people. You're convicting. You're speaking you're dealing, you're speaking to somebody who is not even born again, but is curious. You're speaking to somebody who would like to become born again, and this can be their opportunity. You're speaking to somebody who is born again, and they realize, I have been more busy building my own kingdom than I have been entering the kingdom of God. I can't put this off. I want to urge your friend, don't put it off. Make it today. Lord, we thank you for these keys laying out there in Scripture that unlock some locks and open some doors and minister to us a great entrance into your kingdom. Now, Lord, we ask for your grace, for your help, for your strength, for your conviction, for the work of your Spirit moving in our spirit and bringing revelation and bringing life and bringing repentance and bringing turnaround and bringing change and bringing development and bringing insight and restoring and healing and repairing what has been wounded and damaged. And if we'll come to you, you have freedom, you have healing, you have everlasting life. And Lord, we thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, later this week, we're going to uh, continue. There's These seven keys are going to show up in our devotions all week. And here's the other thing I've done is I've shortened them down to under 15 minutes. And so join us at 7 in the morning or whenever you can each day, and there's going to be some prayer and a lesson connected to each of those points, and I believe it will be a blessing and a help to you. Until we see you again on Tuesday or on Wednesday in the devotions, Lord bless you. May his grace and his peace be upon you in Jesus' name. Amen. 
We hope that you've been touched by God's grace. As you've listened to our podcast today, we'd love to hear your response via email. And the address is podcast at visionchurch.ag, podcast at visionchurch.ag. And if you're in the area and don't have a church home, we'd love for you to come and visit us personally. We're located at 4024 Dakota Trail in Lake Worth, Texas. We together have a vision, seeing Jesus for us, in us, and through us.